0: This episode with Henry Tapper started as a discussion about pension credits but Henry being Henry we ended up making some interesting digressions into questions around value for money, decumulation strategies and CDC and how Australian pensions policy might be relevant for the UK. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you do too. I thought I so I've been really interested in your interest in pension credit which is not I confess something I'd given a lot of thought to till I saw you making some noise about it. So I was really intrigued to get to talk to you about it and find out a bit more. Just before we go there though I'm really conscious that people listening to this podcast are highly likely to have heard of Henry Tapper and know who you are from your media activity and your profile in the industry and so on. But I guess not everyone will maybe be familiar with your business. So without wishing to turn this into a, a protracted, gratuitous advertisement for your <laughs> business, just just give us a bit, a bit of insight on that before we go on to the pension credit stuff.
1: Okay. Well, I've always been interested in choice and I've been interested in how people take choices. And after nearly 40 years of helping people to take seriously good choices, I've discovered that I'm really no closer to that nirvana where people basically take the choices they should do from from was back in 1983 when I started this out. So I've been interested in setting companies up, and one was the Pension Playpen, which is still running as a social media site, but originally helped organisations to choose workplace pensions. We had over 700 employers who did that. And, And now I'm interested in helping people to take proper decisions about their workplace pensions, or their AVCs, or all kinds of money purchase, a uh, terrible phrase, money purchase, but money purchase benefits. And uh, we've been working with people's data to try and help them to understand what happens, and doing this for a company called AgeWage. So we provide analytics for people so that they can make informed choices on what they've got, consolidate their pensions, convert their pensions, if you're their pots to pensions, and I'm also very interested in that conversion process. So that's what mm. brings me into areas like CDC, which I'm, I'm well known for. And, of course, I write a lot. People know me through social media. But the real point of writing is so that we can start getting some kind of change. Yeah, yeah, uh, because absolutely. Because not everything's right. I not mean, lot's right, but not everything's right.
0: And sharing like ideas. Sense. So look, I'd, I'd be interested to touch on the value for money stuff as well, which is something I meant Doug went into on, on my last podcast, but it just sits so closely to our age range. So let's just put a pin in that for a little while, and we'll come back to that. What made you pick up on the the pension credit issue? Good to talk, talk to me about that. What got you interested Yeah, in I mean, my mum
1: is the answer. My mum, who's uh, in her late 80s, she'll be 90 in a few days, and she was running out of money and... She couldn't work out why it was that she had so little money coming in. And she lived in a big house, which was very expensive to heat. And she had to pay lots of council tax. And in the course of speaking to her, I said, well, are are you aware of something called pension credit? And she said, no, I don't know what that is. I'm sure I'm not eligible. I said, well, no, I I don't think you are, because it's a a means-tested benefit, Mum, and you're a lady of a big property but actually when i'm thinking about it what's your total income and a total income was less than the state full state pension so i said to me, you're a ringer for this in you go and and that that got me going but here was somebody who had a house which is worth over half million quid mm. but who was eligible for pension credit and i thought i bet you there's loads and loads of people like my mum so I started talking to a guy called Gareth Morgan, mm-hmm. who's a, a wonderful guy. Some might know him as the guy in charge of Fair Information Systems. And, and Gareth said, yeah, this is very typical. Um, there's a lot of people who are either in a position where they feel they would never be able to qualify for pension credit or know a little bit about it, but uh, suspect that if they actually tried to claim something awful would happen. And then my mum was very much like that. What if I don't get it? Will I be, be stigmatised? And there are a few people, obviously, who are, who are quite proud and don't like to claim excessive benefits, but I think they're a lot less than people really think. So that's what started me thinking about it. But there's a lot, a lot of people like my mum out there who are simply running out of money. And of course, at the same time as thinking about these things, we started hearing about just how inflation was going to hurt these people and how the old age pension was not going to protect them this year because they're only going to get 3% rather than a sort of 10% cost of living increase. So it became like, wow, this is really a big thing, and maybe we ought to—I ought to be doing something about this. Well, writing about it, I started writing about it. Got lots of responses, and then I got a call from Pension Minister's office saying we'd like to come in and talk to me about the things that really matter. And I said, yeah, I'd be happy to talk to you about these three things, and one of them was pension credit. So when we got to speak to Guy Opperman, he said. Um, you know, I've just done something in the house about this. I didn't split it where it was in Hansard. And he sort of handed me the Hansard and said, Look, look what I've been saying. He was saying lots of really good things. I said, So, why is it we've only got 70% take up of this amazing benefit? And he said, Quite literally, you can't give it away <laughs> for all the reasons I've talked about. So I said, well, I'm sure we can do better. I'm, I'm sure there are ways we can connect with these people who aren't claiming it. And, and maybe the private sector's got stuff we can you know, we can do about this. And he said, well, I'm, I'm all ears. And there were lots of civil servants in the room and they were all sort of looking and sniggering into their mouth because I've always been trying to do this for a number of years. And, and he's right. It is incredibly hard to find these people because they're not obvious candidates. Some like my mum but a lot of them aren't English speakers at all. A lot of them have never claimed on anything. Speaking to Steve Webb the other day, he reckons there was 100,000 people eligible for something called the citizens' pension, which is for seniors, people who are 80 years all over. And these people get a, a, a healthy pension, even if they don't qualify for the state pension because they haven't been in this country never made national insurance contributions. But if you're over 80 and you've had 10 years in this country, you get this thing called the senior pension. So I thought, bloody, there's loads and loads and loads of work to be done here, and who's doing it? So I was asked to go along to the working group on pension credit, which I didn't know existed, I don't think anyone knows existed, but it is a group of people from all kinds of sectors, including the BBC and so on, and these people are busy trying to find ways to help you know, people pick this benefit up, and it's a huge amount of money that's sort of on the table. Just in terms of pension credit, there's a sort of 1.8 billion pounds, right, which is going unclaimed each year, and, on average, people are losing out on about £2,000 a year of pension credit. But the really, really terrible thing is that not only are they missing out on pension credit, but, but because pension credit is the door to more, yeah, they're not getting all the other things they could get. I mean, the one that everyone knows about, so if you're over 75 and you're claiming pension credit, you'll get your TV license paid mm-hmm. for. But there are much bigger ones there's the council tax of saving and there's winter fuel allowance
0: housing benefit um, mortgage interest support. yeah housing You've got benefit the all home,
1: home discount on, on, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah so all these things are really really important the minister said to me well what's this got to do with you and I said well I, I suppose morally speaking having been in pensions for 40 years I kind of feel that it's incumbent on people like me to talk more about just about the pensions you save for, but also the pensions which you earned or haven't earned as a result of paying national insurance, or just from being a citizen. And these are kind of things which are really important to me. And he said, "Well, that's very good." And I said, "Well, while we're talking about this, is there anything else that you know we can we can think about?" And he said, "Well, could you think about automation?" I said, "Well, what do you mean?" He said, "Well, it's a means-tested benefit, and it's costing my department an absolute fortune to do all these." Things.
0: They've got big big manpower costs there, isn't there?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's it. And I I started thinking about it. And uh, when you do the pension credit application, the first question they ask you is, are you in receipt of a state pension? And I thought, blimey, this is the DWP who pay my state pension asking me if I'm in receipt of one. So there's clearly something not very joined up about that question. And the more you look into it, the more you see that quite a lot of government databases don't talk to each other. So I think that there is something that we can do which is more than what's going on at the moment just by getting government databases aligned to each other. And that's more of a sort of, well, this is how we've done it type conversation which could be going on. But I'm not really qualified to give government advice on IT matters. But it does touch on the pensions dashboard. And speaking to Steve Webb about this the other day, we came up with a number of things which could be done to sort of make make for a more automated sort of approach. And, and one is when the dashboard arrives, if we can start flagging to people who are in there coming up to state pension, because pension credits only pay to people who are over 60, well, over the state pension age, sort of 66 of them, 67 going forward. Mm. If we can flag to them that they look like candidates for this pension credit just by what they put into the dashboard, I think that's quite a, quite a good one. But that's
0: that's that's an interesting one because that would require the dashboard to actually read the data and say, "Oh, Henry, you know, we've got your information on your state pension, and this dashboard is telling us that you've only got a really modest amount of private pension savings, so you might be eligible." But the whole principle of the dashboard, at the outset, at least, is it's you know you're the only one that can see the data that there's no no one's monitoring the data coming through for privacy reasons, so. It would be, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you here, and it sounds like an eminently sensible idea, but uh, I think there are some sort of data access issues there, perhaps.
1: Yeah, there, there are. And you, you don't need somebody who's calling you out on this, uh, saying, you know, somebody from Maps phoning you up and saying, look, you know, you look like a candidate. It can be done by a simple feed. I mean, if, if if uh, you know, the bell doesn't ring because you haven't got sufficient income to even make it to state pension age and your total savings are less than a certain amount, that could be the point at which a red flag is for automatically. So you don't really need to, you just need the systems change for that. You don't need to have somebody intervening and actually telling you that you really ought to be doing this, that or the other. But I take what you're saying. It's it, it, it's important that the dashboard is private to you. So you shouldn't have super snoopers from the DWP so snooping around on it. I agree with that. I think there are ways we can look, look at that. And another thing that is really important is <laughs> the BBC. They are such a, a useful source of information because they know who pay all the license fees. Yeah. And if they can go out to all their over-75s and say, do you really want to be paying this license fee? Oh, okay. You know there's a possibility that you get it paid for you. Yeah. Well, that seems like a very sensible way forward on this but the really biggest win of all are the local authorities because the local authorities know who's claiming housing benefit and if you're claiming housing benefit you get and and you're in the in the of a certain age you have a pension credit claim coming your way so the local authorities can really do a lot to try and find these people and then the final area that we talked about which i think is really helpful is that non-english speakers and typically are people who are typically left behind because they just can't, you know, they just don't get their, their head around the system. But they have trusted networks which are different. And, and religion is a, such an important part of many immigrants' lives. So, you know, I, I've started talking to my own church and talking to other churches. My own church is about 75% of people in the church are over 60, and about 75% of the people in the church are don't have English as their first language. So that's a classic example. So we're actually looking at whether or not we could do some kind of just help, financial help session for our congregation and mention things like pension credit and whatever. And if people are, are able to hear it in English, that's fine. But even if they aren't actually in the church, a lot of these people in our congregation, know loads and loads of people who aren't in the church, but who are connected. And I've been speaking to similar people in the Islamic there's a wonderful mm. guy called Islamic Finance Guru,
0: and oh, what does he do? <laughs> yeah, he,
1: he he goes around giving advice on halal investments. Yeah. He's, a, he's a great guy, and he's got a whole team of. Well, effectively, they're they're not quite IFAs, but they they tell you what is halal and what isn't. So they've been very much involved in the now pensions, oh, yeah. uh, the thing with Uber, yeah. you know, yeah. getting getting all the all the Muslims who drive Ubers. To have a halal investment option, what we call Sharia, Sharia investment, but they call halal, and they said no. Oh, this is actually absolutely fascinating. Yeah, this is an area we could really deal with because an awful lot of our elderly people right, in our communities aren't clearly aware of the benefits they could get. And this citizens' pension sounds like a real, really interesting one for them, but pension credits too. So I think I think we've got to look at areas which we haven't explored before. I, I hope I haven't banged on about this too much, Tom. But, I mean, I just think there's there's an awful lot of just thought leadership that could be done, but also a lot of connectivity can be done. We've got a, a National Pensions Credit Awareness Day coming up on June the 15th, and I'm, I'm gearing up to do something for that and really push this hard with all the people who I've been connecting with through this pension credit working group. It's That's really the interesting. And, and,
0: on and I was deliberately sitting back and letting you talk because it was it was a really interesting flow of information and thoughts. So. So that's really good. That citizens' pension you mentioned, I wasn't aware of that. Do you know how much <laughs> it is? I mean, how what, what's what's the, what's uh, how significant is it?
1: Well, it's. It, it, I mean, it, if you're on nothing, yeah. yeah, it's it's very significant indeed. And you can probably hear me typing away now because you caught me out here. Of
0: Sorry, course. Henry, it was yeah. an unfair
1: question. Uh, uh, pension, uh, uh, going, going the citizens' pension. I'm going go on the citizen Advice Bureau site right right now to find out how much it is. And of course, I. Uh, typed in the wrong thing it's about 80 pounds a
0: week what also strikes me listening to you laying out that that situation is how this reflects on other things that guy has been working on at the dwp and i'm thinking in particular about his interest in the midlife mot and his his aspiration to get people we're talking about a different cohort so we're talking about people who kind of typically in their early 50s that kind of cohort to and looking at ways that resources could be deployed to get them thinking more about their finances and you know he's looked at using mm. pension providers and job centers and and, and those kind of organisations but but there's a parallel here isn't there because it's the same basic challenge of trying to find ways to reach out to people and just help them address the problems which in many cases they don't even know they need to think about and what you were talking about there going through the churches or faith centers of, of one kind or another, it's kind of similar. It's, it's about going to where the people are and trying to put the information there rather than expecting the people to come to knock on the door at the DWP, which, is, as you've already described, can be, can be pretty daunting for them.
1: Yeah. I mean, actually, the application process is a lot easier than it was. and You can do it online or you can do it by proxy. And there are lots of ways we can help people to apply, which are much better than they were in the past. But it's still hard work just getting people started on this. The win is
0: huge. I'm a big fan of the way the government has evolved its consumer-facing websites in recent years. And I think the way they present information and the way they ask you to make decisions on the websites now is actually really good. for something that I think a lot of private sector organisations who tend to overthink things and overcomplicate things could learn from. It's just if, if you've got lots of blank page and simple messages, it's so much easier for people to walk through. And I think the government deserves a lot of credit for that. So I'm I'm going to to reverse briefly because I was intrigued, Henry. You said there were three things that you talked to Guy about. Can you say what the other two were? Well,
1: one is how we can make CDC into a retail product. Because for me, CDC is just a pension. It's just how you convert a pot into a pension Mm. without it having to be an annuity, but also without having to suffer the trauma of getting your drawdown wrong. Which is something that I worry about a lot. You know, how do I, how do I set a drawdown rate? How do I know that my pot isn't going to run out before I do? So mm. that's um, foro, you know, the fear of running out. And I'm very, very encouraged by talking to, you know, some of the annuity providers who are, you know, really interested in providing funds which self-insure the longevity risk, so that basically. If you die and you this fund, your money goes back into the funds and gets shared out by every, to everybody else like it was an annuity. But, but the fund is invested rather than in gilts. Hmm. And it's doing real things and so on. So I explained, you know, that I didn't think that a lot of what CDC is about, yeah, needs to be covered by the pension regulators, very onerous, cdc assurance framework uh it's it's just too hard massively overly engineered for the private individual and and he was very receptive to that and he said that he's setting up a decumulation task force over the summer which is going to provide a big consultation hooray Another consultation that's just what we need in november yeah but the person who's been put in charge of this is somebody who i think is very good it's like a lady i think you know tom mm. called joe gibson and that sounds as if it could really deliver or accelerate the delivery of a sort of mass market CDC product which anyone can basically take out as a sort of alternative to an annuity or an alternative to drawdown and might sort out some of the problems which people have to try and work out their investment pathway. So uh, that was the second of the two thing, the three mm-hmm. things, three things, and the final one, was that I, I, w- I was quite keen to talk to him about ways in which we could standardise value for money. And this was before we had the Patenture Regulator and FCA paper, which came out last week, which did talk about standardising a sort of a VFM framework which people could use. And I'm, I'm quite keen that we get to a point where people do actually understand the value of what they've been invested in, not in terms of, what the insurance company wants us to think, which is, you know, this is a super-duper product with online access and all this support and this, that, and the other, all these, these tra la bells and whistles, which which is okay but as far as it goes, but it's not real the main event. The real main event is that you put some money in a long time ago and it's grown at a rate which is better than average. So I want to get people thinking about what's happened in the past and actually work out whether or not they've, they've got value from their pensions because this seems to me a very simple way of getting them to engage with whether what they've bought is any good, because they're going to have to do things like consolidate their pensions so that they pay themselves a sort of wage in retirement, and in that consolidation process, they're going to have to take decisions about which pensions to keep and which ones to, to, to combine, and we haven't really got a way of, of actually working out what's good and what's bad. So a value for money framework seems to, us to, be, to me to be absolutely critical, especially as we move into the dashboard, where you know people will see all their pensions in one place, and they have to start sort of thinking, well, how do I rationalise all this stuff I've
0: got? Yeah, I absolutely agree with all of that. And it was really interesting to see that response paper on on value for money come out. And I mean, clearly, there's still quite a lot up for grabs on that in particular, how they're going to measure investment performance, Uh, which seems to be something the industry does not have a, a clear consensus on. And kind of also feeds a bit into the costs and charges, because how you reflect the costs and charges in the investment performance is is one of the things that's getting people agitated. But then also the customer service and the scheme governance, because those are really difficult things to quantify. So how you create a comparability framework for that, I think will be an interesting challenge. But I also think, you know, it's absolutely right that we're asking these kind of questions. because. But one thing that struck me about the paper is... It feels as if the wording, this joint FCA TPR paper, and as you say, the DWP is now taking a lead on it. So everyone's talking to each other, which is great. But it feels as if it's still framed a bit in terms of how IGCs and trustees can use the data. And I didn't see quite enough in there about and how ordinary people can use this as a sort of one-pager Print out that says gives them an immediate you know on a page this is whether my pension is good or bad kind of download which I think coming back to your point about the dashboard is what ordinary people are going to need if we're going to get ordinary people interested in their retirement savings we've got to make it easy for them so I'm really keen to see that coming out of the value for money work
1: yeah uh, that's something that I've been thinking about as I was doing the consultation to, uh, response to the financial reporting council's mm-hmm. stuff on Simpy or Scampy or whatever it is called and We're still looking at a sort of one-size-fits-all type approach for people, so that they get a, this is what you're likely to get if you buy an annuity. It's got a little bit more advanced because they're looking at trying to personalise it according to a sort of assets that you're actually invested in, Mm. which is good. But it's still a million miles away from, yeah, but what does this mean to me? It's much more, you know, if you were the average person, you would get this, yeah, which is... Which is all very well, but most people don't really like to think of themselves as average. Most people would like to have a projection based on what's happened to them or what they're investing in and all that stuff. And and there's not much of that about. So I'm really keen that we start thinking about projecting people's pensions based on what's happened in the past. So that people, I know we're not supposed to say the past is a, a guide to the future, but I mean, there's not much else to go on, is there? <laughs> I'm really hopeful. Economic theory,
0: Henry. That'll solve it for us. <laughs>
1: Economic theory, yeah. I mean, if you go into Tesco's and you buy some washing up liquid, you say, oh, it's 50p, right? And that's been, that was good value because I know it worked last time and I got a lot out of the bottle or not. So you, kind of, you go by experience. You go on the price and you go on the experience of using it. <laughs> and that's pretty well how, how we have to actually value pensions, you know price and the experience of using it is it but actually pensions a lot more about that most of the value we get is actually in the investment growth we've got and nobody talks about that so well, we tell people how much things cost
0: yeah no no i agree with all of that my my concern about where the frc seems to be going with the actuarial standards technical memorandum one on how projections will be executed for the pension dashboard on the backward look of this is our measure of what we think your pen- how good we think your pension is and has been to date is one thing the bit that worries me is the forward look is is yeah. that kind of and now we're going to try and help you understand where you might be 10 or 20 years from now where yeah. you're just then making a set of assumptions and for that yeah. my worry is that they're massively overthinking it and introducing spurious accuracy to the equation because you know, as we've just discussed, they don't really know what's going to happen. So we can stick a finger in the air and say we think this is a sensible number, but yeah. counting angels on pinheads and sort of saying ah, oh, might, it might be three point one or it might be three point five depending on particular asset classes. That you know, who are you kidding here? It's like just just yeah. give me give me a sensible number and keep it simple. It would be my take on it. Right.
1: Okay. So I, I think in in the short term, we just need to give people something which at least gets them thinking have I got something which has got value or not? Yeah. So that's that's my, my basic premise. And going forward, I am thinking, well, you, if we project everything forward at the same rate and whatever and standardise things in that way, that's probably about as much as we're going to be able to do between now and when the dashboards arrive, which is mm-hmm. 2023. Although it's a hugely unambitious way of doing things. Yeah. I would like to have people looking at their different pension pots and saying, you know, this one here looks like it's doing well and this one isn't doing well, and actually engaging in the whole thing. So they start saying, well, yeah, and I'm getting a good experience with this pension provider. Or I don't get anything at all from this lot here. i never heard from them for all this time. So they can say, okay, I, I, can, I can make choices. Now, actually... <laughs> I hear a lot of people in, in this podcast audience going, but how are they going to make those choices? And what if they make bad choices and all those sort of things? Well, I think I keep on trying to work out in my head is I had to do this. I had to make a whole load of decisions. I had to press a whole lot of buttons to bring all my pensions together. And I'm really glad I did. Mm. Yeah. And I'm sure that I made some, one or two, I left behind some really, really good pots, which I could have kept in there. But basically, I got everything into one place. I got a really good. Deal from an insurance company or SIP type thing, and now it's 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 done well. And I can manage it, and all those things, and I feel good. But the pain I had to do mm. to get there, and and the kind of amount of expertise I had to put in my head to work out whether or not I could afford to do this, or I should be doing this and that, and the other, it was bad. And I, I I fear we're going to have to massively simplify the the decision making process so that we get people into a position where they can actually retire with a single pot and draw down from it in a sensible way or buy one of these new CDC pensions, which I've been talking about. We're going to have to empower people to take decisions because the basic fact is that there are too many people needing to be advised for us or provide them with a kind of personal advice, which, which we know is best.
0: Absolutely agree with all of that. And I think... It's been really interesting contrasting Guy Elperman's tenure as pensions minister with what Steve Webb did in between twenty ten and twenty fifteen. And the yeah, context of totally different has, characters. Absolutely. Yeah. And the context has changed as well. You know, we're in a different yeah. place to where we were when Steve was pensions minister because for most of his period in office we didn't have pension freedom and that was a game changer. Yeah. yeah. But I actually think the you know the more time has gone on, the more I think you know Guy's solutions and the way he's addressing the problems today are the right ones. You know, that make it simple and help people get engaged because not engaging them isn't really an answer right. for all this kind of stuff. Is you know absolutely the right direction to travel, and I think. He's. I think to his credit, he's trying to bring together various different policy strands, which all lead us in that same direction.
1: Yeah, I I think you're right to say that there are there are two. There have been two outstanding pensions ministers in in the last fifteen or twenty years. One, Steve Webb, and I think the other one would be Guy Opperman, and they're chalk and cheese. I mean, absolutely different. Steve is research-driven, huge amount of knowledge about. The history of pensions, fascinated by how the way state pensions works, very much involved in that side of things, and that's that's been the focus. And auto enrollment for him is about defaults and whatever, yep. and getting everything. And so he's he's very much that coming from that angle. Whereas Guy comes from a much more retail pension industry. So he's he's very interested in things like VFM and and, and individual decision making and people taking taking choices for themselves, which is much more from sort of advisory ends. If I saw Steve going into an actuarial consultancy like LCP, I think that'd be fine. If Guy was to retire into financial services, I think he'd probably be working for the Landcats.
0: <laughs> and we'd be happy to welcome him in. I, I, I say that. I'm not sure my boss would agree with me, but I, I think he would be a huge <laughs> asset to the team. So, uh, anyway, I think uh, long may he continue in his present job, would be my answer yeah, yeah.
1: to that. This is, this is highly speculative. <laughs> I, I, I I dare say I don't want to set any hairs running saying pension minister thinking of residing and becoming a sort of a researcher or even an IFA or something like that. I don't think that's going to happen. And, and actually, he, he's coming up now to the, the point where he is actually going to be the longest serving pensions minister in the country, which is, I, which is quite
0: something, actually. I have a note in my diary. What, what's the date, Tom? Do you know? Um, I do, because I did sit down and work it out. According to my diary, Friday the 10th of June. Is, is the date on which be, guy yeah. I I need to go back and check that but I'm pretty sure that's the uh, that's the point at which um, for, for what it's worth <laughs> guy's yeah. tenure as pensions minister will exceed that of Steve so but look you know yeah
1: and, um, and just so, as when Steve was pensions minister we probably undervalued how good he was and then said oh well he's a tremendous loss to the pensions industry when he went I think we'll say the same about, about Guy. Not that he's going... I hope he isn't going to go, actually. Yeah. And one of the things that's interesting is that he's actually talking about things like wanting to reform pension credit, yeah. which is the kind of thing you don't think about unless you're actually looking to do another term.
0: Well, and I, um, I found that really interesting because yeah. there's been the odd occasion when I've spoken to him in the past when you know I wasn't sure that he still had the appetite for, for, for more policy initiatives and reform. And, but just in these last few months and the time when you and I interviewed him a few weeks ago, I was really impressed at his kind of forward-looking approach. You know, this is a man who's still got stuff to do, which is great. So I'm just going to come back briefly to the CDC stuff because this interests me. And do you think, so we, as, you, as you've referenced, we've got the DWP looking at decumulation now. And given everything we've just discussed with the value for money and the way that the pensions regulator and the FCA are trying to be on the same page on stuff, Uh, I'm interested in whether what we see coming out of the DWP later this year will have a read-across to the FCA-regulated sector as well, because I think that would make sense. You know, if you're going to do it over here, why not do it over there as well, because they're all DC pensions in the end. And that conundrum, that challenge of how we put some guardrails around people's decumulation strategy, how much money they take out of their pension every year, and how they manage that, You know, we've actually not made a huge amount of progress on that since pension freedom in 2015. It's got a bit better, but there's still a big gap there for anyone who is not paying, you know, a couple of grand a year to a financial advisor to keep an eye on their portfolio for them.
1: No, no, that's absolutely true. I, I mean, if you talk to... Mark Johnson has done a lot of work this at this Just or Claire Altman is doing a lot of work at Phoenix. There are a lot of people in, in the FCA regulated sector who are really, really interested in whether or not they can, either off the back of, of a master trust platform or, or through a SIP or whatever, offer pooled funds which to accumulate people. Yep. So yep. basically a DIY drawdown with longevity included inside of a pool fund a one-stop shop if you like which, which, provides,
0: which when you put it like yeah. that it sounds like a reinvention of the investment backed annuity
1: so it, it, it sounds so much like it but i think it is it
0: yep so i guess you know my question then was going to be so what's the difference henry can you unpack that at all what would be the difference uh, okay, between a cdc uh, and an investment backed annuity what
1: what's changed I, I don't think very much i mean One of the things that is changing is that insurance companies are going to be able to do a lot, have a lot more freedom to provide annuity-type products because of the improvements in the for them anyway in the permitted links regime. They can get new new types of assets in. That's that's one aspect of it. And the second is the solvency two stuff, which is likely to be rewritten as a result of our great Brexit dividends.
0: But the other so. I agree with that, but the other other aspect to it, and one of the reasons investment-backed annuities didn't do better 10 years ago, is the distribution challenge, is how you put these products in people's hands. And by comparison, a conventional annuity or a drawdown plan are intuitively much simpler to grasp and much easier to distribute. And so thinking about my time at Hargreaves, what we found with investment-backed annuities was just the process of having to explain to a customer what it was and how it worked and what was guaranteed and what wasn't and do that in a safe, compliant way proved quite challenging. So there's still the distribution conundrum there. Have you any thoughts on how that could be overcome?
1: Yeah, okay. I I, I think that here, here I do think that Steve Webb has got a lot to say. We now have a much more collective type approach to, to pensions. Yeah, the consolidation thing has happened and is happening. And we're seeing master trust consolidation, master trusts. We're seeing lots of occupational schemes folding into master trusts. We're seeing the whole workplace stuff really coalescing around 10 or 15 big schemes. And GPPs are now becoming much more sort of niche products, which are sort of tending to be run by more progressive employers, often in the highest fashion and so on. But it's, it's not the big area of growth in workplace pensions. What we're now getting to is a point where Nest has got 11 million members. I mean, it's a phenomenal number of people. I mean, it's basically more than one in four of the population has got a Nest pension. You know, Peoples has got a huge number as well. Now, Kshawn Smart, mm. these pens- these are all guys who got you know, or about a billion, a million people in their pension schemes. So, what we can, f- what we could do yeah, is create a, a default accumulation structure where there were relatively few accumulation strategies, yeah, and they were shared by a re- relatively large number of people. So instead of having what we have right now, which is a thousand flowers blooming in the retirement income space, yeah, we could consolidate to a relatively small number of ways of getting your pension paid, you know, which, which wouldn't exclude drawdown and wouldn't exclude annuities, but which would focus very much on a standardized approach. This is the way I'm doing it. And from the numbers I've been seeing, the kind of income that you would be paying from one of these CDC type annuities would be between six and seven percent. Which includes the longevity premium, if you
0: like, the longevity booster, and that's a high enough number to get people interested. Yeah. Uh, a couple of asides on that: of course, at the moment, nests still can't do drawdown; they're not allowed to, which is a I, I think you know shouldn't have been the case in the first place, and it's looking like an increasingly glaring anomaly in the whole system. Yeah. So, so there's that. And and of course the other thing is uh, as as Guy pointed out you know we should look across to Australia and see how they do it over there because you know his, his contention is they're always they're always ahead of us. I think
1: the retirement income covenant in Australia is, is is an interesting idea. The Australian government has worked out that the problem isn't people spending their money on Lamborghinis, but the problem is people not spending their money. Yeah just basically hoarding their pension and then passing it on to other people and living in relative penury. And government feels that this is not what they gave the tax breaks for. So they're saying to people, right, okay, we you can do what you like, yeah, but if you can't work out what you're going to do, don't do nothing. We're going to give you a retirement income option, yeah, which we're going to say this is acting very much like the default so you, if you can't choose anything, choose this. That's yeah. the kind of nudge which people are getting in Australia. Well, I think that's and,
0: a, a really good idea. Yeah. Sorry, go on.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that seems to be it, because it does strike me that people have great difficulty spending their pension put. They just don't know when to start. They don't know what to draw.
0: The yeah. other issue, I think, with this is, you know, I've mentioned it before on this podcast, is the death benefits. Yeah. That's such a distraction. The fact that the Treasury has created a set of rules, this is all George Osborne's fault, and he shouldn't have done it, is he's just made it far too generous in terms of how you pass on unused pension monies on death. So just to level the playing field a little bit and to get people thinking more in terms of, I use the money now, or it goes back into the pool to prop up rates generally, and we'll benefit from that. Whereas what he's created is a world of, well, I'll hold back on drawing my pension income because then I can pass it on to my kids and it's IHT free. And that is just, you know, why are we giving people tax relief on pension contributions if that's how we're going to treat them further down the line? It's just it, it, it
1: doesn't make sense. You're absolutely right. And actually, it's very interesting to get these products up and running, these kind of things I've been talking about. The Australians market research told them that people felt that they would have to have some kind of guarantee that the money they put into one of these C- CDC-type pots, mm. things yeah, would have to come back to their next of kin if they were to die in the first five or ten years, whatever it was. So they've written these huge whole-of-life policies which pay out on death an amount equivalent to the amount that people put in yeah, so that everyone feels they aren't going to be cheated by the annuity process. Mm-hmm. And it's a really big deal for a lot of people with an annuity that you don't yes. get the money back when you put, you got put in. So if you've got that guarantee, you're going to get the money back. It's sort makes a psychological advantage. But the actual cost of this insurance is relatively small.
0: So you can build in some so sort of tapered of value protection, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's right. And P, apparently in Australia, this has been the thing that's made... Q Super and Challenger and the ones who've tried it, yeah, it's made it work, is that people feel they can invest in one of these these policies, they can get themselves an income, and they know they're not cheating the next of kin. But it gets around that whole problem that you're talking about, which is you know, people feeling that really they they're, they're, it's a guilty pleasure spending their kids' money.
0: Yeah, though I can tell you some research I did recently with YouGov for a report on equity release that I'm going to publish in a couple of weeks' time. Actually, when you ask the kids, mostly they'll say, yeah, I'm pretty relaxed about you spending my inheritance. And quite a lot of them are quite relaxed about their parents spending all the inheritance. And I think one of the things that's holding back the equity release market is that there's this kind of misinformation thing going on where the parents think they should preserve the capital. And the kids are kind of mostly saying, I say kids, they're all in middle age, right? Are actually saying, no, look, you know, if you need the income now to spend on, like like Henry's mum, you know? Do it now. Don't don't hold back on our account, which I think is interesting. Uh, look, so let's just bring it around full circle back to pension credit where we came in. So we've got one or two billion pounds of government money that's not being claimed. As you said, they can't give the money away. There's hundreds of thousands of people not getting it. I was really interested that you talked about trying to bring data systems together you didn't mention them as well but hmrc is another one you know whether it's BBC or DWP. Right, yeah the real time yeah yeah so other, but... so just you talked about there's a working group looking at this so yeah. just kind of bring it around full circle what happens next on this henry what what grounds for optimism do we have in all of this
1: well i, I i'm not sure whether it's going to change the world but i have been asked to write a small paper in june which i'm researching at the moment saying what are the sort of five things that we could do to increase participation what are the five things we could do to improve automation and, and, and when do you think realistically we can get there now i might end up saying actually on the automation side the most the easiest way of sorting that one out is to reform pension credit and make the means test less complicated mm. Yeah, that, that might be the answer. But I think even within the current framework, there are things we can do by way of pre-population and so on. So I, I'm going to write something out, and I've got my good friend Gareth Morgan to write it with me. He's much more sensible about these things, much more experienced about these things, and he will know what, what the answer the possible is. And then we're going to sort of share that initially with this working group and say, look, does this make sense? This is what the private sector is coming up with here. And there are some organisations that we're talking to who've done some really great things like Virgin Money have done some really good things like this. But by and large, the private sector hasn't done anything on pension credit because it doesn't see it as his job. And the question is, you know, is there advantage in, in private? I, mean, I, I think there are lots of things which the private sector does, which is none of their own business. So things like Nest sidecar savings thing, right? It's, it's, it's none of Nest's core competency to do the, the sidecar savings, but it does it anyway because it's a good thing to do. And it, and it is.
0: Well, I agree. I think it's a really good bit of research they're doing there. Yeah, but isn't
1: this a good thing to do as well? Because let's face it, you know, you've got some kind of responsibility, I think, if you're calling yourself the pensions industry to make sure that pensions are inclusive. That's why we have a, a Minister of Pensions and Financial Inclusion. And... You know, you've got organisations like Phoenix Insight, Nest Insight, and People's Pension do a lot of really good work on this now. Doing good work on it, there are all these people and insurance companies are getting into it. you look at the amount of work that Legal and General have done on, on on social purpose and so on, it's clearly part of the job you know, of the financial services industry to help the public sector out and make sure that pensions is good for everyone. So I do hope that we will see more interest in the take up of state pensions, even if we can't necessarily get to a lot of these people because they're excluded from our system. I think just making it part of our DNA that we are actually interested in everyone getting good quality pensions is great. And I, and you may have known it, but I had a great friend called Ben Jupp who's still knocking around. And Ben wrote a paper, ooh, 20 years ago now, which Frank Field picked up. And, and the paper was called Reasonable Force. And it said that the duty of government is to make sure that nobody becomes a burden on others. And I I thought this was a really sensible, very Tony Blair type way of looking at pensions, which is let's get everyone to a minimum level of financial inclusion so we don't have the extreme levels of poverty which we know are out there which are going to get worse this winter let's do everything we can to stop that happening because as a society we really don't want to be seen as the kind of place where the old simply can't afford to heat and eat
0: that's a really good message to finish on finally Henry for anyone who doesn't already read your blog where can they find it? oh
1: go to henrytapper.com or better still just google Henry Tapper because I think there's only one of me there's virtually no other Henry Tappers the whole world so google henry tapper and then see what comes up and, and then when you get on my blog just search your keywords and you'll probably find some nonsense going back to 2009 and the frightening thing is i can't remember you know 90 of what i I can't remember anything about it but it's fun looking back and it's kind of like a personal diary of mine this is how this is my journey and i'm i'm i hope that a lot of people you'll get some fun out of just looking at the kind of work but better still right subscribe just get the 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 daily emails which i, I which come out of the blog which i don't have anything to do with, which arrive and, and enjoy reading the kind of stuff that i put out because I, I think a lot of the time it's not me talking it's other people i'm publishing good stuff from other people and i think that it's, it's a good use of your your time in the morning
0: well worth looking at henry tapper it's been great talking to you thank you very much thank you tom I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, then do please consider leaving a positive review and maybe even subscribing for future episodes. The sound engineer was Ross Burns. Thank you for listening.